Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Hello, listening audience. It's Mike Ryan Ruiz. I produce this South Beach Sessions podcast with a lot of help from our great team of producers, Chris Whittingham, Anthony Collati, Roy Bellamy. Everybody has a hand in making sure this podcast gets out to you. It's a long-form interview series hosted by Dan Lebetard, who you'll hear from momentarily. I want to tell you who's coming on this week's episode is Harvey Mason Jr., and he has a very fascinating job. I'm a huge music fan, and this is one of the dream jobs I would love in the world. He has been recently named the CEO of the Recording Academy that governs the Grammys. And the Grammys have obviously been embroiled in some controversy for lack of diversity among its voting base. And now, Harvey Mason Jr., after 15 months of being the interim leader, is now the black CEO of this 64-year-old organization. So what change is he going to bring about? But As fascinating as his job is now, he's had quite the climb up to this position. We're talking about a great college basketball team that he was a part of at Arizona. He played alongside Sean Elliott, and he went from there to making music with Aretha Franklin and Beyonce. And now, as I said, CEO of the Recording Academy. So one of the more interesting lives from any of the interview subjects we've had here on South Beach Session. So without further ado, here's Dan and Harvey Mason Jr. Hello, this is Dan Lebetard. Welcome again to South Beach Sessions. One of the things that we aspire to do around here, beyond just talking to interesting people about interesting things, whether they're in sports or not, is trying to talk to powerful people, trying to talk to people who are parts of movements, who shift things, and who get into positions where they can activate some change. Harvey Mason Jr. is the new president and CEO of the Recording Academy. If you're not familiar with what that is, because I do want to start talking to CEOs around here, it runs the Grammys. And so Harvey Mason Jr. is basically running the Grammys. I'm I'm going to go ahead and assume, and thank you, Harvey, for making time for us, that that is the thing you're most associated with as CEO of the Recording Academy, right? Most that, that, That take up most of your time? It does. The Grammys is what we are known for. It is one small percentage of what we do, actually, as an academy. That's definitely the most outward-facing portion of the academy and something we're very proud of. We're the only peer-to-peer recognized award, so it's really the music professionals and the music creators voting on the excellence in all different categories across music and awarding Grammy awards. And so what is your history that allows you to be in this position now, right? If I'd asked you... 24 months ago, are you someone who could be the president or the CEO of the Grammys and Recording Academy? If I'd asked you back when you were playing with Sean Elliott at Arizona on a Final Four team, would you have imagined that this is where you would end up? I think two questions. First, should I be in this position? What makes me think I should be in this position? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) But I think the experiences that I've had throughout my life and career 
definitely prepared me for this. It was not something I had planned on doing, but I think it really aligns with what I wanted to do in my life. You know, I, I as you said, I played basketball. I learned so many lessons there and really formed and shaped who I, I am as a person, as a business person, as a father, as a musician, as an executive. And then I continued to go through my musical journey and making music and producing records and now film and TV. It taught me how to collaborate, how to work hard, how to sacrifice. And I think at a certain point in my life, I realized that there was an opportunity to give back and there was an opportunity to really utilize what I had learned and what I experienced in my life to help other people. I know that sounds sappy, but as you get older, I guess you start going down that road. You start thinking, okay, I've done this, I've done that, I've done everything. And what, how can I make an impact for others and how can I help? And that's why I gravitated towards the Academy. I saw the other things they were doing besides the Grammys. I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about some of that, but there were so many opportunities to help music creators that were very much like me when I was coming up and I was getting started. Uh, and I saw that opportunity at the Academy. So I, I initially ran for chair and that was uh, my first leadership role at the Academy. And how did you get this job? Right? Because for a while it was an unpaid job for a while. It was an interim job, correct? It was for 18 months. You know, I was chair. I ran to be elected as chair on a platform of change. You know, as I said, I come from the music industry. I'm still in the studio kind of every day working with artists, working with creators. And I saw the Academy. I saw what it could do. But I also saw that it was a little bit stuck in the mud. We needed to do things differently. We needed to do better. We needed to modernize. And so I ran as chair with the idea of let's look at everything we do at the Academy, see if we can improve it. Uh, we had an issue with our the CEO at the time. Uh, and then the board asked me to step in on an interim basis. I did that for 18 months. And during that time, I was really preparing the Academy for a handoff. I was trying to make sure that we were positioned really well to have a new CEO come in and, and have a place where she or he could really thrive and not have to worry about, oh gosh, what am I going to do with this Academy? How am I going to rebuild it? So I was trying to reset that. And in those 18 months, uh, we made huge progress, big transformational changes, sweeping uh, edits to everything we did. And then at the end of the 18 month, the board asked me, they said, Arby, we really appreciate what you've done. Uh, we've done a search and we think that you would be an excellent candidate to continue to lead the organization. So I was not expecting. Uh, and I reconsidered, I spoke to my wife, I looked around with my team and said, what have we accomplished? Do we want to continue? Can we push it further? And we said, yes. So I accepted the role. And so when you took the job and you have it for 18 months, it is simply, you were just transitioning. Where, at what point during this did you say, okay, this is, this is change that I can make that's substantive? Day one. You know, that's, like I said, when I ran for chair, I saw a lot of opportunity for change. I saw the chance to really upgrade a lot of the things the Academy was doing. Uh, I was doing that in partnership with the previous CEO for a short period of time and with our board and our executive leadership team. And then when I assumed the interim role, I immediately jumped in with the opportunity to make real important impact and real important change. And Dan, this gets into kind of my philosophy, maybe it's too deep to go go here, but I think music and entertainment, what you do, what, you know, a lot of people in, in music and entertainment, sports for that matter, it's really important. It's really impactful. We have so many things going on in our world that are really difficult and heavy and pull us apart and separate us. And I see the opportunity for music and entertainment to bring people together. And so as soon as I was in that role, I said, 
this is a chance to utilize this platform for something really good and really powerful. So I wanted to make change. I wanted to be, be more representative. I wanted to bring more voices to the table. I wanted to hear from people that weren't being heard from. I wanted to reflect our current society. And at the time, the Academy was, was lagging in that. So day one, I came in trying to make big changes. How do you arrive in a place, take us through the journey where you're making music with Beyonce, with Aretha Franklin, with Elton John? Grew up in a musical household. My folks were both musicians. My dad was a drummer. My mom was actually a trombone player. So I just kind of grew up with music in the house my whole life. And I, I almost considered it a hobby. I had a lot of fun with it. My main thing was sports. I really wanted to play basketball. I wanted to be in the NBA. I, I was living and breathing sports. And music was a release for me. It was something I did after practice, after hours. Uh, so in college, as you said, I played, played ball with, um, with the University of Arizona. Uh, my coach, Lute Olson, was such a huge inspiration for me and one of my mentors changed my life, uh, as did many of my teammates. But during that period in college, I was writing music in my dorm room. I was always making music and singing, and they always were like, oh, Harvey's over there singing and making, making records. Uh, then my senior year, I tore my ACL and ended my basketball career at that point. Uh, and I really focused on writing songs, and I really enjoyed – it was therapeutic almost. It was good medicine for me. Uh, after having kind of lost my dream of hoping to be in the NBA and all my teammates went in the NBA. You know, as you said, Steve Kerr and Sean Elliott and Tom Tolbert and Kenny Lofton, these are all my teammates. So we all had the, the goals of, of playing together or playing in the NBA. So I started writing songs and people started hearing the songs and liking the songs. And uh, that's how I got started. A writer of songs since when? Like how, when you're on the path and you're coming from a family of musicians, are they supporting the sports path or would they have preferred you to take a musical path since you were already inclined there? They supported me regardless. My parents were amazing. They uh, they knew the difficult road it was for them to be in the music business, but they also recognized an early talent in me. So they were supportive. Uh, but then I wanted to play sports. I played basketball, football, you know, track. I did everything. But I was really bad at basketball. I was my worst sport, Dan, if you can believe that. And then my eighth grade year, I got cut from the team. And uh, my dad and I said, let's start practicing. Let's see if we can make the team as a ninth grader. And I did. And then ended up being all CIF, all American. And so my parents were very supportive of whatever I wanted to do, uh, thankfully. Before we get to the musical inspirations, though, so all of your teammates go on to the pros, or so many of them do, and you tear your knee up. Now what? Now I sit around in my dorm really upset for a short period of time because I've been working towards that goal my whole life um, since I was, you know, eighth grade. So I guess not, not my whole life, but quite a few years. And I was using music just as, as a release. And as I said, writing songs in my, in my room and I was trying to figure out what to do. So I started writing music for, local businesses, burger stands, break stores. And I would make these little jingles and we would talk about, you know, what they did, what their services were. And we would sell those to the radio stations. And I was making a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks a jingle. And I saw that as a way to make money with music that I also loved. And that's really what started me down the musical path was the ability to make some money. I just finished college. And I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm not going to play basketball. Uh, and I started, I was able to make money selling music to, to small businesses. And so that's kind of how it got started. Weird well, take, start. 
Take me back to that time, though. Take me back to right there, because you're a bit broken, right? I mean, this is your dreams. Your body has failed you. This was a great team you were on. At this point, before your, before your knee, you're still thinking, this is what I'm going to do professionally somewhere, correct? For sure, for sure. And so well, how, how, do you, how do you make that next step of transition? How long did it take? What period were you in that the music was birthed from this pain? It took me about eight months from the time I finished basketball to the point where I really even figured out that there was another option or another path. Because during that eight months, I was fairly depressed. I was down. I was lost. You know, my teammates were still playing and training for the draft and, and going on. And I was struggling and trying to figure out what my path was going to be. Uh, but as I said, through that time, music was there. Music was something I did, not with the idea of like, hey, I'm going to turn this into money. But this has felt like a great, great way to, to release my emotions, to communicate. Um, and so it wasn't until eight or nine months of that process until I really said, you know, this is an opportunity for me to use my music to also pay some bills. Because at that point, you got to remember, I'm finished college and I'm sitting around trying to survive. And um, so that was that was the period that I, I it wasn't done out of like, oh, this is my glorious release of music. It was necessity. It was like, I've got to make money, got to make a living. And I love music. I have a passion for making music. So that's really how it got started. That sounds, though, desperate and hopeless. The idea of if, if I come to you and say, you know how you're going to get out of this, Harvey? Jingles. Jingles about sandwiches are the answer. I bet you you can do it from here. It sounds ridiculous. It does. It does. But. As soon as I started doing it, Dan, I realized, I said, this is a perfect training ground, writing these jingles. Because before jingles, I was writing songs. And I always loved writing full-length you know, songs and music that I one day thought maybe somebody would want to sing. But doing jingles is an incredible like minor league to the record business because you're writing songs that are 30 and 60 seconds. You're doing every genre of music. And you're talking about you're trying to tell stories about a business in a very limited window. So if you take that and you do thousands of them, like I did, I ended up doing a, a jingle for everybody locally in Arizona. Then we expanded to the region and then nationally we were doing Coca-Cola and Mattel toys. But anyways, if you, you spend that time honing your craft, being able to tell a story in 30 or 60 seconds, and you're doing it in every different genre across the board, making records is like, you've got a lot of touches and you can really, really translate that skill set into making music. So that's what it did for me. Take me through the path, though. Are you going door to door? Are you calling sandwich shops and saying, do you need something? Once I realized that this was both a way to make money, but also a great way for me to develop my musical craft, I got really invigorated by, really inspired, and I did exactly that. My hustle started. The hustle that I had for basketball, I translated over to my next business, which was going to be building a jingle company. And I literally would drive to business to business and I would go up to Phoenix. I would be in Tucson. We'd go meet with owners, managers, and tell them how music, and this is a common theme in my life, but how music could amplify their message, how music could change their advertising, elevate the quality of their business and their marketing. I also went to the radio stations and told them, hey, I'll give you jingles. You can use it to entice people to buy more airtime. I went to the TV stations. I did the same thing. So it was just a hustle percentage of failure as you go door to door how much rejection is there by percentage of 100 percent? 95 percent failure and now 98 98 i think every 100 people we talked to we would land one or two jingles and then we would go to another 100 but you know we had a 
wide territory. You know, there's a ton of small business in Arizona, and, and then we ended up in Nevada and California. So we asked a lot of people if they needed music. A lot of them didn't understand it. We got scientific with it. We started pulling out data. Like, if you use music, people will remember your jingle or your business. They'll remember your phone number. Uh, so it was it was definitely a hustle, and we tried to be very strategic and smart about it, even though that sounds crazy right now, selling jingles to mom-and-pop stores. But it was a, it was amazing way to generate some income and at this time dan i started thinking the money that i'm saving i can start preparing to get back to la that was the ultimate goal at this point i had gotten out over the depression of not playing basketball i'd gotten over the fact that music was just a hobby i'd now said this jingle company is something that's training me helping me perfect my craft but it's also enabling me to stack money so that i can get back to la which is i was born in la went to tucson for college so I'm saving money. I'm buying equipment. I'm trying to figure out how I can convince people to let me write songs instead of just jingles. So that was the next step. Give me the details of the first sale. Ooh, the first sale was a an all women's health club called Naturally Women, if you can believe that. And they uh, they just needed music for a TV spot they were doing. So I did the spot, and then my next spot was for the bus bus company, the transit company in Tucson, SunTrans. Did that spot. And strangely enough, when I was in college, I did, it was almost like a jingle. It was like the, the Super Bowl shuffle for the Chicago Bears. They had this song. And one of the DJs in Tucson asked me to write a song for our basketball team. And this was in 1988. We went to the Final Four that year. And our song was called Wild About the Cats. So if you really ask me what my first jingle type song was, it was Wild About the Cats in 1988. And then that's actually how I got kind of these other jobs was people said, oh, you're you did the What About the Cat song. Do us a jingle for Naturally Women. Do us a jingle for the bus company. What did Naturally Women pay? I think it was 800 bucks, something like that. The bus company might have been 1000 somewhere around there. So it wasn't a lot, but you have to remember at that time, my scholarship check every month was $371. So if I did an $800, $1,000 jingle, I was winning big time. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What was the moment where you could feel genuine hope, where you were success, you were stacking some successes on top of each other and like, okay, maybe this can be a business as opposed to just this thing? Because you can't know what you're doing. You have This is all hustle, right? It's simply all hustle and inspiration, and you really don't have any you're, – you're bullshitting when you're going in there with your data, correct? <laughs> totally, totally. But, you know, it's funny. I don't know if it's just my personality or, or how I like to think, but I definitely – I'm a builder. I'm a person who likes to uh, establish and create. And I think I did the same thing with the jingle company. So after I sold my first jingle, really, I said, 
you know what, I can make this a business. And I really started getting official and professional with it. I would go out and I bought a nice stereo that I would take into my meetings. I did that right away. And I saw it as an opportunity to create something. And again, I just love creating. I love building. And I think my training as an athlete is actually what developed the sense in me. I think Coach Olson was, as I said, so impactful to me. He made me understand that there's a, there's a level of expectation, a level of execution that you had to aspire to that I even didn't think that I could reach. He was the guy who pushed all of us. And that's, I attribute a lot of our team's success to Coach Olson really making us as individuals believe we were better than we actually were. I don't know if you remember Arizona at that time, but it's a lot of overachieving going on at that time and, and beating teams we probably shouldn't have beat. But that was something that Coach instilled in us. And I remember when I started my company, I said, I'm not just trying to get to level three. I'm trying to get to level 10. And it happened right away. I immediately thought, okay, I just made 800 bucks. If I did one of these every week, I could make almost four grand a month. And then if I doubled that, you know, that's how my mind works. And I right, went right into how do I build this as a company? Looking back, give me some of the lyrics on one of them that makes you wince that is filled with cheese because you're like, that's what I wrote and I made some money, but I look back on it now and that was not a very good jingle. That is not my best work. I don't know how I suckered those people into allowing me to parlay this into business. I would say that's probably the case with just about every one of the jingles that I did. And I mean, I did a jingle for Breakmasters. We give you an honest break. I mean, you know, those are, I mean, everyone is as cliche as the next um, Beach Street Barbie dolls. And I mean, I can't even remember some of the lyrics, but I mean, they're all fairly corny, but they're all really memorable and things that you just can't get out of your head. Chinese restaurants and walk cook-offs. And, uh, I can't really remember a lot of the lyrics, but they are fairly embarrassing and uh, definitely a little bit corny. None of this explains, though, how you arrive with Beyonce, with Elton John, doing work with people who aren't from Jingles. Right, that aren't Breakmasters. <laughs> well, like I said... When I started doing this, I understood that it was probably something that could lead me somewhere else. It was a means to an end. And I didn't approach it that way at the beginning because I was really in earnest trying to build a jingle company, which I did do. But I also saw it as a pathway to the next level, which I had aspired to be a songwriter and a producer at that point. You know, I always loved making the music. And at a certain point when I couldn't play basketball, I said, what can I do next that I love and that I care about as much? And that was music. So I think the ability to write a song quickly and write different genres of music and tell stories in short periods of time were all great little training moments for me. And I used those to get better. And I always was writing music while I was doing jingles. So even though I'm I'm doing you know, the Golden Dragon restaurant, I'm also writing what I think is a Beyonce song in my off time. And I do that for probably three, four years. So I'm stockpiling songs as well. And as I got further along in the jingle business, I started seeing an opportunity in LA for the type of music that I was writing and producing. So I would drive to LA, uh, usually like Friday. I'd be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, stay with friends, stay with my, my dad, live there. And I would just shop my music. I'd pitch my music. I would follow people around. I would stalk them to recording studios. I would sneak into record companies. And at that point, embarrassingly enough, it was cassettes. So I was sharing my cassettes 
with anybody who would listen. And then I'd go back to Tucson on Monday and I'd start my jingle business. And so I did that dual thing for probably three years and uh, still a few more steps before I got to Beyonce, but that's how it started. Sneaking into places? Literally. Yeah. I was tell people I had meetings. I would drive uh, my friend's car into the tunnel at the forum or different concert venues and tell them I had artists in the back so I could get backstage. Uh, I ended up just meeting all different artists, taking them for food in between sound check and their shows just to try and make relationships. I followed the president of Sony Records home so I knew where he lived and I would throw cassettes over his fence. I mean, I was scandalous. I was a savage when it came to making sure people heard my music. Probably get arrested nowadays, but back then it was, you know, a little different. And that's the only thing I knew. I didn't have all the relationships. I just knew my music was good. I knew I wanted to do it very much like basketball in the eighth grade. I wasn't going to let anybody tell me I wasn't going to make the team. I wasn't going to let somebody tell me my music was not good enough. And so I just kept pushing. What was the thing that worked that surprised even you among throwing cassettes over fences where the hustle was so ridiculous that you're like, how the hell did that work? That should not have worked. Well, sneaking into Motown records and meeting an A&R executive that gave me my first job was the one that really was like, I can't believe that worked. And it not only worked, but I got paid and I got a, a job to produce a song for an artist on Motown. But it was not an easy uh, hire. It was a guy named, his name was Guy Abrams. I snuck into Motown. I convinced him that I had a meeting with somebody and I was next door. I said, hey, let me play you some music. I played him some music and he was critical of the music. He's like, yeah, it's good, but it's not that good. Listen to this record and listen to this record. And he sat me in his office and played me three or four other records, one in particular. Uh, and I compared it to my own. And I was at least aware enough to realize that my music didn't sound like the music he was playing. I'd been in Tucson. I'd been in a bubble. I'd been doing jingles. I'd been in L.A. running the streets and being in the studios with artists. So I realized there was some deficiencies there and a huge gap that I needed to make up. So again, I went back into my hustle mode, went back to Arizona for six, eight months to perfect what I learned in Guy's office, which was there's a difference between what I was doing and the records that were working on radio. I worked, I worked, I, pr I pr perfected it, I practiced, again, very much like basketball. And eight months later, I went back and I called Guy, I said, can I play you my new music? And he said, yeah. And when he heard it, he said, okay, now you're ready. And he gave me a job with an artist on Motown Records called Impromptu. They never really did anything, but it was my first real paid uh, production job for a major label. And it was all based on, as you said, the hustle and sneaking into the office. Well, I said hustle, but really that's camouflage. You lied your way to the top. You have artists in the backseat that aren't artists. You are getting into Motown for meetings that don't exist. You are a big, giant, lying success story. <laughs> I guess there was some of that deception that we had to use at that point to, to get in the door. Yes, I will admit to that. This doesn't explain, though, still how it is. You don't hustle your way into Beyonce's life. Well, you have to be good enough at, at a certain point. I mean, there's a lot of great hustlers, right? A lot of people that are great scam artists or as you so delicately put it great liars, you know, that can lie their way in. But once you get in, if you haven't done the work and you haven't prepared yourself and you haven't made yourself invaluable, it's, it's not going to stick. You might get one opportunity, but I really think I was, I was in a position to where my music was of a certain quality. I was able to 
conduct myself in a way that people like to do business with me all the way from the jump. This guy, Guy Abrams had no reason to help me, but he liked me. He liked what I was doing. And so between the first record and Beyonce was me continuing to listen, continuing to learn, continuing to work really, really hard. There's a lot of sacrifice. There's not, you know, partying, going out and celebrating, you know, successes. It was getting in the studio. It was working. It was really, um, understanding my craft and understanding what the marketplace was or study is very cerebral. You don't just sit around on your piano, just goofing around. It's like business. And I approached it like that. And again, I attribute that to my, my basketball successes. You don't just go to the game and start throwing up three pointers and hope to win. You have to do the practice. You have to sacrifice all the other students are at the frat houses. You're in the gym lifting weights. And that's the way I approached my music career. So between my first record and Beyonce, it was a lot of work a lot of, you know, failures. A lot of other people tell me the songs weren't ready yet until I got to the point where I was very, very confident. And a lot of my songs are being picked up by artists. Brandy recorded one of my early songs. Then, you know, Destiny's Child and Tony Braxton and a whole slew of artists. And then at one point we got to the Beyonce, as you said. And how does that happen though? How much of that, because there are a lot of talented musicians, how much of it has to do with networking? How much of it has to do with good fortune? How much of it has to do with hustle, with hard work? Like, how do you break up the percentages? I know that this is inexact, it's not scientific, but the big breaks are what? Big breaks are being at the right place because you've strategically thought about where you need to be. A lot of people just say being there at the right place at the right time. I think you're there because you knew you needed to be there. I knew there were certain people I had to get in front of. I knew there were certain types of records I needed to make to make sure people heard them. So that's a big component of it, making sure you're at the right place with the right people at the strategic time. But it's at the end of the day, when it comes to any art for that matter, it's so subjective. It's, are you making something that's desirable or that's relevant to what's going on? You know, people that are consuming music, will they like this? Will they want this? And I think getting to that point again, took a lot of practice, a lot of learning, a lot of listening, uh, something that I still do to this day. And I think the percentage of it is the quality of your work is 75% of it. I think the relationships are a small percentage of it. And the hard work and hustle and and those things are probably the remaining 20 or so percent. Give me the artists that you have watched your work blossom into something and it has moved you to tears of gratitude because it's the representation of everything you've dreamed about. <laughs> That's such a good question. Uh, it's I will be embarrassed to admit that that has happened a lot of times in my career because when you're writing a song, a lot of it's very personal. And artists and creators like me, we're weird people. We have a lot of, I don't know, issues, I guess, but we have things that we're trying to get out. And so when I'm writing songs or I'm, you know, I'm usually co-writing with other people, but when I'm writing songs, those are very personal stories or personal things. And they might be simple, like we're going to the club, I'm gonna meet a girl, whatever it is, but they're still coming from my heart. And so when I hear somebody sing a song that started from nothing, you're in the studio with nothing. You sit at the piano and, you know, a few hours or a few days later, coming out of the speakers is a full song produced and sung and mixed. And then when you hear somebody sing that and it goes on the radio, there hasn't been that many times when I haven't teared up because it's so personal. It's so important. And I, I am so excited about the opportunity that 
this person that I really love and respect is singing my song that started from nothing. Uh, and it's happened. I mean, Michael Jackson singing a song that I wrote to me. He was a, kid, a person I grew up as a kid listening to, I don't know from what age, but forever. And so to think that he was singing a song that I created, it definitely moves me. What was the song? Give me some of the other names so that people can associate. They can have their own emotional links to understanding how it is that you arrive in a point, because that must be the most gratifying. I mean, maybe maybe performing it yourself is as gratifying, but I'm not even sure when you're talking about the legends of an industry that you love. Yeah. I mean, for me, I had no interest in performing it myself and definitely not the talent to perform it myself, but I think having the artists that I grew up listening to were some of the most impactful, you know, the Aretha Franklin. Uh, I remember the first time we worked together and she sang lyrics that I had written, sang melodies and music that I had written. I'm in the control room, right? Then there's the glass and there's the speakers. And then on the other side of the glass is Aretha with the headphones on and the microphone and she starts singing and I just close my eyes and you can hear her voice coming through the speakers and it's a crazy, surreal experience. Um, and that was very memorable. Uh, Whitney Houston, same thing, you know, to hear the iconic voice, the voice that you've heard so many times singing so many incredible copyrights sing your song definitely moves you. That was an experience I'll never forget. Elton John, Beyonce was one, but I started with her when she was 14 years old. So, you know, I, I'd known her for a long time. Uh, so many different artists like that, that you just, you just respect and admire so much. And the, the opportunity to collaborate with them is something that I don't take light and I never take for granted. Luther Vandross, Michael Jackson, you know, the, the list goes on and on. You're saying surreal, but it sounds religious, spiritual, whatever it is that you want to describe it as. It's got to be in that realm for you. It really is. But the funny part then is you try and balance that reaction and that feeling with the presentation of professionalism and trust because you if you if the artists get the sense that you're overwhelmed or you're being awed or wowed by them and their performance there's a there's a little bit of a power dynamic that gets lost so and i'm not sure why i was able to maintain that but throughout my career i've been able to appreciate the greatness and the talent and respect and admire it but not get overwhelmed by it so that we can still collaborate and i can still give them my feedback. I can, I can push them to do better. I remember pushing Aretha. And then when I got done, my engineer said, I can't believe you told Aretha that she needs to do this or she needs to do that, or she should re redo the second verse. She said, nobody tells her to do that. Um, and I think that was one of the things that I can attribute some of my longevity to is I, I have the ability or I've had the ability to work with amazingly talented people and respect them, but also try and get them to do their best work and push them to do something maybe they hadn't done before. Oh, and athletes like coaching. So I'm sure that's part of your sensibilities there, right? You're not going to let an artist athletes almost crave that betterment, the challenge. They, they, Oh wait, somebody knows something more than I do. Of course you are not Aretha Franklin though. I am also surprised to hear that you would dare say to one of the legendary divas of all time, maybe you should try it this way. <laughs> she was surprised to hear it too. I can tell you what she cussed me out up and down more than one time, but then <laughs> sent me flowers and it hired me for her next record. So that's kind of how it goes. But to your point, coaching is very much what I do in, in my life. Now I remember thinking 
Coach Olson could see things about my game that I'm not seeing. He's on the sideline. He's watching it with a different perspective through a whole entirely different lens than I am. I'm out here like trying to make it happen on a play by play basis. He has like more oversight and he has an overarching understanding of the game that I need to pay attention to. And that's the same thing with artists. They're in the booth. They're trying to sing. They're trying to hit this riff or hit this note or make sure they pronounce this word. I'm looking at it holistically as a song. How is this going to impact the listener? How is this going to impact their fans? And I can give them some insight that they might not have. And I think over the years, people have come to trust that about me. And I also don't have any self-interest. You know, some people, producers or otherwise, are trying to bring credit or attention to themselves. My whole goal in making music, my whole career was to make the artists sound better than they've ever sounded. And I think they understand that about me and they trust that uh, implicitly. And so I think that's been one of the key parts of my relationship with artists. And again, it goes back to a great coach. If you, if you think a coach is over there jumping up and down on the sidelines and yelling because he wants people to notice him, you're not going to play as hard for him as opposed to if he's yelling at you specifically to make you better, you understand that you'll run through a wall for that coach. And that's the way I tried to approach music. It sounds like you have the skill set for leadership, but do you have what would be considered a normal resume for this particular position? Uh, you know, I've run my company and I, I've built the company over the years. Like like we talked about earlier, I, I immediately started a jingle business, but that, that evolved into building an entertainment company, Underdog Entertainment. Uh, we ended up signing writers and having a publishing venture. We ended up doing a label deal with Clive Davis. We ended up uh, starting to produce film and television. And, and then my company, Harvey Macy Media, with uh, you know quite a few employees and a lot of different verticals was going on at the same time I was running for chair of the academy. So not a traditional corporate resume, but definitely a resume of building and directing people and working with people, collaborating with people, running a business, dealing with the financial implications and impact of how that affects the business. So I think there were some overlapping skills that I brought to the academy that they value, but also I'm guessing here, I think what I have in the way of relationships and the way of understanding of the industry and uh, expertise and experience in this business was something that the academy saw as valuable in order for the academy to, to communicate and relate to the creative community having somebody like me who's from that community, I think makes it, makes it better. I think it makes a difference. They tend to be two different worlds though. That's the reason I asked the question because creative mind is one thing and business mind is something else. I don't know the history of this position, but I don't imagine that the history of this position is someone who fancies themselves a musician, a creative. I imagine a business assassin in this position. Yeah. And that's very true. And that has been the case sometimes in the past of the organization. Uh, but I think this is a different day and this is a different time. And I think having a, an academy position to be able to partner with the industry and creative people and labels and streamers and all the different people that are in this industry, you have to be able to move quickly. You have to be dynamic. You have to uh, be able to relate. And I think that's what the academy is positioned to do now. And I think Hopefully I bring some of that to the table. Um, yes, there's a business you know, requirement and some expertise that goes into this position for sure. And hopefully I will continue to do a good job, but I'm also smart and I hire 
good people. You know, people that are smarter than me are, are who I try and keep around. We've just appointed two co-presidents, Alicia Butterfield-Jones and Panos Panay, who are both brilliant. And so they will be bringing a lot to the table to really make this a high-functioning organization. And, and that's a priority for me. We want to take the academy and turn it into the next evolution of the academy. And you're saying, well, Harvey, why is this so important? You guys give out Grammys, you give out trophies. Yes, very important. We honor excellence in music. But what a lot of people don't understand is we take all the money from our show, all the money from CBS, from the Grammy telecast, from everything else we do, and we put it back into the music industry. So we're giving back to people. We're helping people who, who might need help, who've lost the job, who've lost their instruments, who might have mental health issues, who might have a, a sickness or a drug addiction recovery, things like that. Music people need help. The Academy is there to help. The other thing the Academy does is advocate. The advocacy for music people, Dan, right now is so important. We've got technology changing, the consumption models are changing. We have to make sure people who make this music are taken care of. They're able to monetize it. They can make a living. I don't want to lose the next great songwriter to a tech company or to somebody else because they can't eat and they can't make money. We, we have to keep our creatives paid. And then the final thing is we are in music education. You know, kids, young people have to be exposed to music. If I wasn't exposed to music as a kid, I wouldn't be here. I worry about other people that might not have a music teacher or might not have a music program or an underserved community that just doesn't have the resources. Those are the things the Academy does. That's what I'm really passionate about. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What is most broken about the music business? Well, I think the music business is not entirely broken. I think there's a lot of great things that are happening in the industry right now. You're seeing more music being made and consumed than in the history of the world. We have almost 400,000 new songs coming out every week, which is incredible. You see, you have an explosion of talent and the technology enables people to make music quicker and maybe better. I don't know. It's up to people to judge. But I think the issue that we're facing is how do you bring attention to your music? How do you differentiate yourself? How do you stand out? And the ultimate issue that I think we're having is how do we compensate music people fairly? And there's so many different constituencies. There's the publishers, there's the labels, there's the artists, there's the writers, there's the producers. And trying to figure out and manage an equitable way to separate or to pay out and to split up the money that's being generated, because it's billions of dollars, Dan, being generated by this, by this art form making sure that we're able to fairly split that pie up is something that I think we still have to deal with. That's been throughout the history of the industry though, correct? Like that's never not been a problem, has it? No, it, it, it's been somewhat of a problem, but there are federal regulations and statutes as to who gets paid what. With streaming, it's the wild west. Everybody's trying to renegotiate and trying to figure it out. And a lot of the federal legislation does not apply to stream. You know, there's a statutory rate that is tied to inflation that goes up when you buy a CD or when you buy a vinyl or when you download an actual physical download that you go into your computer, that is regulated. When you stream a song, there's no per stream regulated fee. So that stuff has really changed and, and has to be sorted out. 
in the Grammys, did you inherit something that was antiquated and a little bit broken in 2020? I wouldn't use the words broken. I would use the word ripe for improvement. I think it was an opportunity to take an organization that does so much great work and so much really important, important work. It was a chance to take that and expand on it and look at all the initiatives, all the processes, everything that was going on there and see, is there a way to make it better? Is there a way to have it serve more people? Is it, can we actually use the platform to make big change? And that was what I saw that we could do. And that's what we saw as the, as a leadership team we had uh, in front of us. And, you know, we're in a time where there is so much separation and there's, you know, the racial tension, economic uncertainty. There are a lot of things happening. COVID, you know, there, there's, there's nothing bigger than that, but we have the chance with this platform, with music, through the Academy to really make a difference. And we're doing that internally with our hiring who we're bringing in to work with us. We're doing it with our membership who we're inviting to be a part of the Academy. We're opening our arms. We're opening our ears. We're listening. We're trying to get people to come into the Academy because we know how important the work is. We know how important the awards and the nominations are. So getting those processes right so that we can continue to generate revenue for the Academy, which in turn goes right back out to the industry. We know how important that is, but bigger picture, we know what kind of an example we can set at the Academy. Uh, we know how we can be more diverse, more inclusive, uh, more representative, and make sure we're doing that with our membership, with our staff, uh, with everything we're doing at the Academy. And that's the goal for me and for us. What about the job caught you off guard or overwhelmed you? I think what caught me off guard was, was the amount of things that needed to be dealt with on an individual basis. We have 20, over 20,000 members. So I have 20,000 people that have an issue and a lot of them have my email address. <laughs> so I'm talking to people almost every day about, Hey, Harvey, you know, you need to look at this. Harvey, you need to address that. So that caught me off guard a little bit. Um, but I was really prepared because I'd been involved in the Academy. I'd been, you know, trustee, I'd been chair of the board. So I, I knew what the job entailed and I had seen people before me do it at a very, very high level. Uh, but the times have changed. The industry has changed. The academy had to change. Uh, and I'm very proud of, of the leadership team, uh, the elected leaders and the staff and the direction we're taking the academy. It's a, it's a whole new era. You've conducted an organizational restructure. What does that mean? It's a little bit, you know, in line with what I'm talking about. I, I just looked at what was happening at the academy and how we could restructure it so that we could be highly functioning. So specifically, it means changing the reporting structure, changing, uh, you know, the C-suite and, and who is in that area, who are our chief officers, who's doing what, who are they reporting to? Do we have enough representation? Do we have enough different perspectives at the table to make good decisions? And that's the thing about the academy i think now we're positioned to really have input and and hear voices from different areas different genres different genders different sexual orientations and all those ideas and viewpoints and perspectives come together to make better decisions and so a lot of the restructuring was making sure that we had that in place some of it was very in the weeds systematic you know, like changes that need to be made procedural changes that needed to be made uh, but just really with the goal of making the academy highly functioning highly dynamic and able to not only keep up, but, you know, set the trail, set the path, be an example for the industry and help lead where we go as an industry, but also as a culture and society. How not diverse was it? 
it was not diverse. <laughs> it was, it was older. It was more white males than we have now. Uh, and there's, it's not, it wasn't done intentionally. It was, you know, we have a problem in our industry. We don't have enough women in the music business creating music and producing music and performing music. There is a, a, an outweighed amount of men in the industry. So the Academy was reflecting that. So now my hope is the Academy can change that and we can help change that in the industry at large as well. Um, also it was, it was more white than it is now. And I think that was something that had been being worked on over the last many years. You know, I was brought to the Academy because I think somebody before me in leadership said, you know, we need to find more relevant black creators and bring them to the Academy. But since I've been here, there have been huge programs. Uh, Valicia, who is our chief diversity, equity, inclusion officer, myself and a couple other people, the Academy have established a black music collective, which is specifically focused on making sure there's more black representation in the Academy. And we're hearing from those voices, as you know, uh, almost 40% of music being consumed right now is black music. So we have to make sure that we're aware. And again, we're listening and we're hearing from that community. What is it that we need to be doing? How can we reflect that genre or those genres? How can we represent this music accurately? And that's something that we have to do. What is a business inefficiency that you discovered that was more stark than the lack of diversity? An inefficiency across the organization was the lack of data and the lack of knowledge. You know, I came in asking for, hey, how, what are our numbers here? And we're like, oh, we don't collect that. Or what are our numbers here? We don't have that. So I think getting the data, and that's just, again, no blame. It's not anybody's fault. It's just not something that was important to a music organization back in the day. But today it's very important. It, it'll guide us, it will, it will inform us and educate us as to where we need to be better, where we need to be different. So the lack of data is something that, I, that I've been dealing with and that we've been um, curing. I think there are new programs in place at the Academy that will get us that information that will help us do more work and do better work. So that was probably the thing that caught me off guard the most. What are some of the business philosophies or things that you say that are on brand for you as a leader that the people who love you and the people who work for you are tired of hearing? Uh, level up. Uh, these are just catchphrases, bias for action, uh, do better, be better. Uh, I think the people that either love me or hate me are tired of hearing those things, but I really aspirational in the way I think we are headed as an, as an academy, as a leadership team. I think uh, I see opportunities in everything. I see solutions in everything. I, I don't look at things as problems. And I encourage our entire group to, to think the same way. And most of them do at this point. Uh, I think being able to act quickly, thoughtfully, but quickly, and that goes to the bias for action comment. You know, we talk a lot about that at the academy, making sure we're analyzing and considering and, and being sensitive to all the issues at hand, but also don't be paralyzed by fear to make a change or to try something different. It might work, it might not, but let's let's try it. And as long as we've thought about it, we've talked about it, we feel like it's the best thing, let's, let's move in that direction. So that's something that we, we talk a lot about. And then collaboration and best idea in the room and making sure you're hearing from everyone, all the stakeholders. And that's, I think, a part of hopefully the people that like working with me, that's something that they like is that there's no ego about this for me. This is about trying to win. And again, back to, back to sports, it's not about who scores the, the most points. It's about 
who wins at the end of the game. So for, for us at the Academy, it's sharing information, it's open communication, uh, trying to, it doesn't matter where the idea comes from. It's just thought leadership and making sure that everyone is playing at the top of their game and we're working on solutions and, and finding new ways of doing things better. So those are some of the things that I, I espouse as a leader. You got no problem with conflict because do better, be better is not something that a lot of people say to somebody else's face. I guess I wouldn't say about somebody personally. I, I say that generally about our processes or systems. Like we've got to do this better. We've got to be better. And I say that about us as an organization a lot. And when I'm communicating to artists or creators, I'm saying that we're going to do better. We're going to be better. We need help. We need you to advise us. We need information. I'm listening. Join us. Those are the type of things I'm saying so that we can do better and we can do more. What are what you regard as the biggest mistakes a leader can make? It's hard to judge, but I think the things that I try and avoid, because I think they would be a negative as it would relate to the organization or to the, to the company or to the staff is, is being overly self-important or having an overinflated ego. A lot of leaders get in the position and they're so wrapped up in the power of it and they're wrapped up in the title of it that I think sometimes they might lose sight uh, around you're just one person. You're just one woman or man that's running this organization as a leader, but you are not the organization. The organization is bigger than you are. You're there for a limited period of time. You have an opportunity that you've been given that you should be honored and humbled to have. How can you better the organization or institution you're working with? Uh, so I would say an overinflated ego is something that uh, I'm, I, I'm allergic to. Harvey, unusual journey. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. I feel like it uh, it is absolutely an unusual journey. It's far from over. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Dan. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family-owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB, the CV, copyright 2024. Proximo, Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.